Out of the Ice, Part 4, Long Trek. I am sending to you the owl's talons on which you can have the heads of small candlesticks fixed. Uh, who? Daniel? No. Uh, Merriweather. Dearest Betsy, Please tell Abigail that Daniel reports he has at home a dog who is so fat he can hardly walk around, and his name is Flash. I think Abigail will like the joke. And tell her that Daniel has told me he wants to adopt a monkey as a pet. James says the Institute regards humans today as merely a link between the apes and the coming world of better man. They say all species die, but humankind must not. They say we must explore a new territory, the singularity it's called. They say we must expand the single human mind. The brain is merely wetware, overly simple, too small, too slow, too focused on itself. Digity do says, no, no. You stay slow and small and personal, not always linked by manufactured intimacy or mechanical and algorithmic amplification and transmissions of something that passes as the truth. My very long trek, my last trek, began with Daniel. He and Aeneas and I traveled from Massachusetts to the little village of Athens in the Ohio Territory, where a small new college had been started by two Harvard men. And then we went on by foot, horse, and boat to the Indiana arriving there seven months after Meriwether Lewis and William Clark had begun their great exploration of the large territory Jefferson acquired from France. And then, from Indiana, Daniel returns home. Aeneas and I continue on to the west, sometimes moving with small groups of French and Spanish adventurers and traders, and sometimes with small parties of aboriginals. From Clarksville on the Ohio River, we go by boat to St. Louis, and then essentially followed where Clark and Lewis and their 30 men had already traveled through the territory of Louisiana. They reached the Western Ocean on the other side of our continent and were headed back east when I trekked for some days with a Lewis-led group of men on their return trip toward St. Louis, and then left them to venture alone to an area described as a river of ice. My husband, dear, dear William, were you actually able to see the Western Ocean? Did you go there? Abigail sends her love and says, Ask Daddy if Daniel will soon have a monkey. Today, thinking of you and your trekking, I took a very long walk with my friend Gwendolyn. We headed for the river crossing above the farm of Mr. Masterson, Jr. 
But when we reached the river, it was running deep and fast from so much winter snow that we could not cross, and so just stood there, watching the current increase its speed and width. And Gwendolyn found a rock with a piece of paper tied around it that must have been thrown across to our side of the water. On the paper was written one word, help. We called out, we called out, but were answered only by the roar of rushing water. And we could find no other sign of anyone in trouble and finally had to start home, not arriving till after dark. There are days, William, I suspect you also experience them, when I need to find a stone, write help on it, and pitch it over some obstacle. Be safe, dear man. Eat well. Do not too much hurry. But please, be sure to head for home. We miss you. Many of the Indians I met often endured extended periods of eating very little. I saw a hunting party bring down a deer and devour it, all uncooked, even to the soft parts of the hooves. They are the whole and impulsive people who often act from the needs and feelings of the moment. Some of them are wonderful horsemen, riding animals which could have made a fine show in the horse lands of Virginia along the River James. I rode on these handsome steeds, sometimes sometimes feeling the beasts and I were together as one joined creature. I also took great pleasure in being lifted and carried in a variety of boats from native craft built for a few men to large 40-foot French pirogues that could carry heavy cargo and a crew of eight. Several times I was rather comically dunked in a lake or river with a small jolt or with two dips and a flirt. And always I was walking, sometimes just watching my feet move forward, other times listening to my feet on the land and feeling them strong, good feet, good feet attached to a good body. And when the time comes, they will take me home. In the Northwest Territory, there has been neither black slavery nor involuntary servitude. But some native peoples here have been killed, captured, forced to move. This trek has been a great and wondrous adventure. Our country has a very wild aspect that I find completely absorbing. I stood above a vast plain on which could be seen innumerable herds of buffalo, attended by their shepherds, the wolves, antelope and their young scattered all over, herds of elk, a lush green perfectly clothes the ground, the weather uplifting and fair, and to the south stood a rocky range of lofty mountains. Oh, my dear Betsy, I hope you read my notes and letters and poems with pleasure, and if they are not elegant, they will at least smell some of the woods and the plains and the great American wilderness. I wish sometimes for the pen of a writer and the brush of a painter so that I might be enabled to give to an enlightened world some just idea of this truly magnificent and sublimely grand landscape which fills me with such joy and astonishment. 
There is a trio of pests which invade and obstruct me on all occasions, mosquitoes, gnats, and prickly pears. And, starting this week, the barb seeds of dry, low sedge grass which cling to my leggings and my skin. I was roused late at night by a tree that had taken fire and leaned immediately over my shelter. I moved the little lodge, and a few minutes later the tree fell on the place where the lodge had stood. Ladybird, ladybird, fly away home. Your house is on fire and your family all gone. My mind is... My mind is now perhaps less jumbled than previously. Or is that true? Whose mind are you talking about? There are large bears which have no fear of men or dogs, and being so hard to die, they intimidate us all. I must confess I do not like these clawed and hairy gentlemen, and had rather fight two Indians than one bear. Two of Meriwether Lewis's men were hotly pursued near the river by an enormous bear they had wounded. They tossed off their guns and pouches and threw themselves into the water, although the bank was nearly twenty feet perpendicular. But the enraged bear plunged into the river only a few feet behind the second man, until fortunately a third fellow on the lower bank was able to shoot the beast through the head and finally kill it. A late summer day, off a lone hunting game for Lewis, Clark, and all. Placid time. I slipped into sleep at Clearing's Edge, heard a sound, awaked to see a warrior creep away, my rifle in one hand, my spontoon in the other. I found my pistol, pointed it, and yelled, Stop! Stop! That's mine! Put it down! He understood and did and then melted into trees. I retrieved my rifle and spiked pole, turned around and saw another flathead Samish running at me with hatchet raised. I stabbed him dead. Fear, terror, a kind of joy. Clark and Lewis and their men have gone back to St. Louis. Traveling alone again, I head west and north, and I count the dead fires of 126 Indian lodges before I arrive at the summit of the highest point in the neighborhood, and I think myself well repaid for my labor. I behold a rocky place in the distant mountains, covered with ice and sun, shimmering on it, giving a most alluring view. That must be the beginnings of a river of ice. This institute here is a cluster of large buildings, but it seems a small world when I compare it to the nearby mountain forest, which I can sometimes see, but to which I've never been taken. So I'm only a mind hiker, a brain trekker. 
Didgeridoo has taught me some special word and movement codes that can lead me to special kinds of material in the system. I can use, for example, a gesture combined with the image of a color, or a snatch of scrambled poetry keyed in or spoken. The question to be or that to be is not. It works. I explore the corridors in the Institute, which run past rows of locked doors and barely a window. Some passages are very wide and high, and many of them have digital tracks for guiding carriers which deliver food and other items at the back entrances. Moving in the corridors, there are often robot machines of various sizes and colors that are going about their tasks. They run errands, deliver medical tools and information. Some of those machines I've heard speaking to each other, and a few have spoken to me as we pass. I began a series of conversations with one of the human-sized machines. He or it is moving down a passage toward me, and I shift left and then right to pass him in the wide hall. It moves directly in front of me, nearly blocking my passage. I stop. It is totally silent a deep, dull, cherry color. One of those that are identified by an apparently random series of letters and numbers etched on its surface. His numbers begin in M244. I look at the thing, wondering, wondering, is it looking at me? It speaks. Hello. Have we met? Oh, hello, I reply. No, or or if we have met, I do not recall it. He just remains silent, like the aboriginals I met on my journeys in the West who would frequently say nothing so that I would continue talking and perhaps reveal myself. So I say, perhaps we may meet again soon. Goodbye. And I move past M244 and continue down the hall. I've not been instructed not to explore the building, but I have never been offered the opportunity, and I've only seen one other resident in my explorations, and she was silent, one finger pressed to her lips, and she slipped quickly past me. Several days later, I heard... 244 talking softly to another bot whose visual sensors are then turned and focused toward me. 244 and I continue to meet on a number of different occasions and we converse about topics curious, trivial, informative. I think perhaps it is a spy and is compiling some sort of report about me but it never tells me I should return to my quarters. It apparently never reports me to anyone and converses freely with me. Perhaps his brain has evolved in a random error or was not completely finished, or it has what Digididoo calls a glitch, or he may have been deliberately created to provide a way for residents to interact with him. M244 sometimes appears to have emotions. He's asked about my feelings and can respond about his own, sometimes chuckling. He knows exactly how long I've been here. 
He says he first became conscious nearly 26 years ago, and he knows his entire family history. I was manufactured, he says, in the state called Utah and programmed near Vienna, Virginia, and in Seattle, state of Washington. And he refers to these locations as rather like the names of his parents. I'm derived from Vienna and Seattle. I have one sibling, my Linda, a nurse currently in rehabilitation. We both look forward to singularity. M244 gossips about the medical staff, but he names no names and sometimes abruptly stops in the middle of a story and switches to another subject. He knows an endless number of jokes, many of them rather boring and simple, minded even to me. And he's attracted to dogs, and he says that his, his sense of smell is at least equal to theirs. He tells me that some dogs here are not real dogs, but are doubles, copies that have been made, enhanced by technology. Dog bots, he calls them. About some topics, he replies that, oh, I have no information on that, or I've never heard of that, or I'm not allowed to talk about that or reveal it, except, I suppose, to approved humans or bots similar to himself. Wait for the future, Williams, he says. William, in the singularity, we will all know everything. I met a mechanical version of myself. It is called Whitebot. It had a voice that sounded like mine, knew many details of my life, stories, forgotten jokes, opinions, prejudices, was my person but not me. Not me. I don't know what it is. End of part four.